When you take a bold and courageous stand for the Lord, do not expect human support. Okay, so 1 Kings 18 is where you want to find in your Bibles. Join me there. This is the showdown of showdowns that is just upon us. The stage has been set. The prophets of Baal are there. The prophets of Asherah are there. Ahab and Jezebel are there. Uh, The people are there. And of course, Elijah is there in this place that has for centuries been known for Baal worship. And everything is now coming to a head. And that's where we pick up this morning. We won't see fire come down today, but we will be really close. So we'll be studying today verses 22, 23, and 24. And let's just begin by reading. We'll pick up from verse 20 and we'll read down through as far as we'll get today, which is verse 24. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, follow Him. And the people did not answer Him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, He is God. And all the people answered, It is well spoken. So the stage is now set. Elijah has already begun addressing the people. Remember, he's speaking to the people. He's not speaking to the prophets of Baal or Asherah. He's speaking and pleading with the people. And he poses this question to them. How long will you go limping between two different opinions, between two diametrically opposed worldviews? How long will you try to hop between the two of these? If Baal is God, then go for him with all you've got. But if the Lord, if Yahweh, if the self-existent one, if He is God, then He is the one that you should serve. And the people were unable to answer Him a word because they are unwilling to commit to anything. And so then we pick up from verse 22. Then Elijah said to the people, so notice he's still speaking to the people. His thoughts and his words are addressed to the people, not to the false prophets, not even to Ahab, or to Jezebel in this, throughout this section, he speaks to the people. He's, and he said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. So let's think about that for just a moment. He says, I am the only prophet of the Lord that is left. And we have a few other people to consider. First of all, there's Obadiah, who undoubtedly is there. And we know Obadiah to be a man of faith, and he's a man whose courage has been restored. He is a man whom God has used mightily, He has placed him in the court of this man Ahab and he has used him in powerful ways to save the lives of some 100 prophets of the Lord. So what about Obadiah? Is Obadiah done? He doesn't count. 
Well, notice, of course, that Elijah says prophet. I'm the only prophet. Obadiah was not identified to us as a prophet. He is a believer and a follower, of course, of the true God, but he's not identified as a prophet of the Lord. But what about the 100 prophets that Obadiah has saved? Certainly Elijah knows about them because it wasn't that long ago in the passage that Obadiah told him about those hundred prophets. So why does Elijah say, I'm the only prophet of Yahweh left? And we're not told why he says this, but we can speculate. There are a few different options that might be the case. Maybe those hundred prophets have been discovered and killed by now. That's certainly possible but probably not very likely. It seems like if that were part of the story, that it sure seems like it would have made its way into the story at some point. So they probably haven't been discovered and killed, which leaves us with two other options. One is that they have been compromised and they have forsaken their faith like most of the people and they have gone over to the dark side now. That may be the case. Uh, Probably, I think that's less likely then we probably would have heard about something about that as well. I think the most likely scenario is this. I think that they are just afraid and they will not expose themselves. They know about this meeting. Certainly they have interacted with Obadiah from the time that, that Elijah says to Obadiah, I want this meeting. So certainly Obadiah who feeds them and brings them water, they've heard about this and they just lack the courage They lacked the courage to come out of hiding, to come out of the cave and stand with Elijah as they have heard about this showdown between Elijah and Ahab. They lacked the courage, which is regrettable. We would have hoped that the courage of Elijah that they heard about would have stiffened their courage. As Billy Graham says, that that oftentimes the courage of others stiffens our spine. So we would have hoped that maybe they would have been encouraged to see or hear of Elijah's courage, but they weren't. So that's regrettable. It sure would have been, I think, a bonus for those 100 prophets to have been there standing with Elijah as he proclaims the living God. But at the same time, of course, we see what sort of a victory that they missed out on. If that is indeed the case, that they were just too afraid to show themselves and stand with Elijah in this showdown moment, then certainly we can understand the great, tremendous victory that they would have shared in as Yahweh is victorious in a a few few more sentences to come over these 450 prophets of Baal. But in any case, we read about Elijah who says, I am the only prophet left of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. So we can't help but notice the disparity in numbers there. There's Elijah... And then there's 450 prophets of Baal. Add to that the 400 prophets of Asherah. And that's a ratio of something like 850 to 1. But even if we just consider the prophets of Baal, that's a ratio of 450 prophets of Baal to one true prophet of the Lord. So that number is obviously very skewed. It's very much out of proportion. And um, we should take note of such a thing as that because what we find As we follow the Lord in this fallen world, we find that when we take a bold stand for the Lord, if you've not experienced this yet, then get ready and and put this into your spiritual bag, so to speak. When you take a bold and courageous stand for the Lord, do not expect human support. That's something I found by experience. Probably many of you have found that by experience as well. 
when the time comes, when God places upon your heart, when there's a certain situation in your life in which you need to take a bold stand for the Lord, maybe it's at work, and you know at work there's some other co-workers who also believe in Jesus, and there comes this uh, come-to-Jesus moment, this, this moment in which bold courage is required, do not expect your fellow believers to be there with you. That's not always the case. Sometimes that may happen. But it's my experience that more times than not, when it comes time for that bold stand and courage, you will stand alone. That will be a path that you will take alone. Elijah is the same here. When his moment comes for him to stand before Ahab, before Jezebel, so greatly outnumbered by these 450 prophets of Baal, he walks this path alone, just like his Savior walked that path alone. This is the way uh, that we most often find. When we take a bold stand, we should not expect it to be with human support. But we see the disparity in numbers and we, we see this 450 to 1. Now, I don't know. Maybe, maybe we can take that ratio and maybe we can consider that today, I don't know, that ratio might be something close to what it was in Elijah's day as well. So if we consider that today's application of this, of course, we don't live anymore in the time of Old Testament prophets in which Old Testament prophets received direct word from the Lord and they spoke directly for God. We no longer live in those moments, but the the present modern day New Testament church application of such would be when we say, okay, for every one true minister of the Lord, I don't know, maybe the ratio is something like 450 to one of those who would claim to be ministers of the Lord, but yet either play fast and loose with the scriptures or either believe that the scriptures are not without error or believe that the scriptures are no longer speak directly to all aspects of life today, or maybe take some other path with the scriptures that we believe, that we know to be unorthodox and unbiblical, maybe the ratio is still something like that, 450 to 1. Uh, we read in uh, Paul's letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, of the last days in which people will have itching ears, he says, and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. So we see that the, the great discord, the disparity in numbers as Elijah faces these 450 prophets by himself. And we recognize that this is the way, this is the path of those who know the Lord. Rarely, if ever, will truth be in the majority. Rarely, if ever, is truth ever held by the majority of people, regardless of what culture we are speaking of. Uh, we live in a culture today that has now for generations, we've been at war with the truth for many, many generations. Going back to the time of the Enlightenment and the rise of humanism, we live in a society today that is at absolute war with the truth. And you can have your own truth. Your truth is not my truth. And everybody just sort of makes their own truth. But uh, what's really important, what really matters is what the majority of people believe. That's how we believe today. That's how the world in which we live acts and navigates through their life is that what the majority of people believe to be true and right and moral, well, that's what is true and right and moral. This is why there is such a focus on polls. Have you noticed this? Over the last 10, 15 years, it's become like polls where these these companies take polling data from different people of what they think, and then that becomes a news story. You see on the news, breaking new poll shows... 70% of people think this way. Oh, well, that means that that's right then, right? That's that's the meaning behind that. If the majority of people think a certain way, that means it's right. 
However, the scriptures tell us the absolute opposite. Rarely, if ever, maybe never, is truth in the majority. We see that through the pages of scripture. There are instances in which we see truth the seeming to have a majority following a people. For example, as the people... One example that comes to my mind is Moses is collecting for the, for the building of the tabernacle. It seems like all of Israel is on the same page there. So there are glimpses. However, when we take the whole of Scripture, when we take the whole of our experience in the Christian life, we realize that, that rarely, maybe never, is truth the dominant position, is truth held by the majority. Uh, truth cannot be judged by the number of people who believe it. The devil has always held the majority in this world. However, we see this, of course, in the pages of Scripture. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, um, the spies, the, the, the 12 spies that go into the land. Joshua, that's what I'm trying to think of, think of not Joseph. The, uh, Joshua and the spies, right? And there's two people in all of Israel that say, let's believe God. God said, go take the land. Let's believe him. Two people. And the rest of Israel says, no, we can't do that. Or we think of uh, Isaiah, the entire ministry of Isaiah, or the entire ministry of Jeremiah, or for that matter, the entire ministry of any of the Old Testament writing prophets. All of them ministered unto a society of people that the majority rejected the truth that they were there to speak. Or think of our Lord as he stands on the stone stone pavement at Gabbatha and uh, the crowd is screaming out, crucify this man, crucify him. He is a traitor. He is a blasphemer. He deserves to die. Rarely, if ever, is truth held in the majority. Uh, now, as we speak about the majority, there's one, one more thing for us to take note of here in the passage. We're not actually in this passage, but actually connected to this passage. Elijah, of course, as we said, is standing against a formidable difference in numbers. There's the 450 prophets of Baal, the 400 of Asherah. The people are not on his side. There's this 7,000 that we'll read about in chapter 19, 7,000 whom God says, I've preserved them from bowing their knee to Baal. But we don't know where they are. They certainly are not making themselves known. They're not vocal right now. So it seems as though it's Elijah against the entire nation, plus all these foreign foreign priests. So that seems rather daunting. But Elijah seems unmoved by that. He seems unconcerned by that. And there's one instance that's going to come up in 2 Kings chapter 6. You might want to flip there. 2 Kings chapter 6, there's one instance that comes up that helps us to understand the mindset of Elijah right now. The mindset of Elijah. So in 2 Kings chapter 6, we're no longer talking about Elijah. We're now talking about his protege, Elisha. And if you remember the story of Elisha, there comes this instance in which uh, the king of Syria wants to kill Elisha because Elisha, it's, it comes to be known that Elisha, through the prophecy, the gift of prophecy from the Lord, he is telling the king of Israel all these things that he shouldn't know. And so the king of Syria wants to kill him. So we read in verse 15, uh, the servant of the man, meaning of, of uh, the servant of Elisha, this, there's this other, we never know his name, but there's this other fellow there, the servant of the man of God, rose early in the morning and went out. Behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And they're coming for Elisha. And the servant said, Alas, my master, meaning Elisha, Alas, what shall we do? Elisha said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us 
are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes, meaning the servant, open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And then the story goes on that God struck them with blindness. So the wonderful, amazing story, the only time something like that happens in the scriptures in which the man of God sees this army coming against him. And so I'm not concerned because they're outnumbered by all these, by this spiritual army that fills the hillsides. And, and this other fellow's there and he's all worried. And Elisha says, Lord, open his eyes and let him see what I see. And God does. And there's this mountainside filled with, with angelic warriors. Where did Elisha learn to see that? I would suggest that it would be entirely reasonable if Elisha was shown how to see that by his mentor, Elijah, who also right here on Mount Carmel is facing thousands of people who want to kill him. And he seems completely unconcerned that he's supposedly outnumbered. Could it be that Elijah also looks across the plains and sees the army of the Lord is here? I have nothing to fear. So we see, I, even I, again, verse 22, and the prophet of the Lord, only me is left. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now verse 23. So here come the instructions. Here how the, here's how this is going to proceed. See, notice that Elijah is still in the driver's seat. Elijah is still dictating, this is what we're going to do. This is what you're going to do, Ahab. This is what these prophets of Baal are going to do. This is what's going to happen. Elijah is firmly in the driver's seat here. Verse 23, let two bulls be given to us. And let them choose, let them, he's still speaking to the people, let them, meaning the prophets of Baal, let them choose one bull for themselves. Cut it in pieces, lay it on the wood, put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. So notice how how he gives the choice to the prophets of Baal. Let them choose the bull they want. I'll take the other one. So Elijah is giving every possible advantage to the prophets of Baal. They're meeting on Mount Carmel, a place that's known for centuries for Baal worship. They are, Elijah is giving them the initial, the first choice. You pick which bull you want. You, You look at the two, you pick whichever one you think is more flammable, more dried out. The one that will most, most easily, easily burst into flames. I thought about, uh, as I was thinking through this, I thought about that Andy Griffith episode, The Loaded Goat. Like maybe one of the bulls is a loaded bull. They can, you know, Elijah doesn't want the loaded bull. He doesn't want anything to be perceived as having an advantage towards him. So you pick the driest looking bull that you want to offer for your sacrifice. I'll pick the other one. We'll, we'll slaughter them. We'll cut them in pieces. We'll put them on these two altars. But then notice, you will put no fire to it and I will put no fire to it. In other words, all the humans there are utterly helpless in order to make anything happen. It's completely taken out of human hands, which it has to be. If you want a test that shows which one is really the Lord, then it has to be taken out of human hands. And so notice the helplessness here that both the prophets of Baal are, are, if you want to say, they are cornered into or they're pressed into an utter position of helplessness. Either Baal is real and he's going to do something or nothing's going to happen. 
And by the same token, either God is real and he's going to do something or both of these bulls are going to rot on the altar. As I was reading through this, I took note of some words of A.W. Pink as he was commenting on this passage. He says, the utter impotency of the creature must be felt and seen before the power of God could be displayed. Man has to first be brought to the end of himself ere or before the sufficiency of divine grace is appreciated. It is only those who know themselves to be undone and lost sinners who can welcome the one who is mighty to save. Isn't that so true? Have you known that in your life that in order for you to truly, really know the Lord, there had to be a time, probably multiple times in your life, in which you were literally brought to the end of yourself. You had no more options. You didn't have a plan C or D or E. You were out of options. There was nothing left for you. God brought you to the very end of yourself so that you may first recognize your utter helplessness. Because as long as there is an ounce of helpfulness within us, we will not turn to the Lord. There is none of us who who still has a remaining inkling that we can do this ourselves. There's none of us who will turn to the Lord until God allows that to be stripped from us and we come face to face with our own utter helplessness. You've probably seen this in your lot in your own life. You probably have seen this in the lives of friends and loved ones. And isn't that a hard thing to watch? A friend or a loved one that God, you just sense it in your spirit that God is bringing them to the place where he's going to break them. I think it's A.W. Tozer that said that he believes that God has never used a man until he has first broken that man. And so isn't that sometimes painful to watch? And I think that oftentimes we actually work against God as God is bringing the situations in people's lives, the, the lives of lost friends and loved ones, He's bringing them to a place where He's breaking them. And we can actually counteract that by trying to get them back on their feet, so to speak, and encourage them in that certain way. And God's here working, saying, no, I want them to come to the end of themselves because it's only there that they'll find me. So we see this within the bulls. Both of the bulls can have no human interaction. That nobody can can light a match. Not that there were matches, but nobody can rub some sticks together. No magnifying glasses. This has to be all Baal, all Yahweh, or nothing. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church. We invite you to visit our website where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.disciplesfellowshipnc.com or connect with our Facebook page at Facebook slash Disciples Fellowship NC. Truth That Transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ through the teaching of His sanctifying and disciple-making Word.